being able to use this place to have this conference and for seeing Jeff safely down here to be with us and um, just how your, your mercies are new every morning to us and as we come back in here and enjoy a good breakfast and coffee and those things that speak and reflect and point us to your goodness, I pray that the same would happen as we uh, deal with a topic that you have created for the well-being of mankind, which is marriage, and that you would help us understand ourselves better by understanding you better and how you have designed us and how you've created this unique relationship and for its purposes. And so wherever we are, whether we're thinking about marriage or we're in the midst of marriage or whether we're in a tough marriage or it's a marriage that is singing, would you meet us where we are and would you grow us and teach us more about the love of Christ um, through all of this? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeff? Thank you, good sir. And we recently got a, uh, a new pastor at Redeemer Downtown where I'm on staff, and he's from the, from the UK, and he does not call it the foyer, he calls it the foyer. <laughs> and, uh, and the appetizers are, strangely enough, nibbles. And I said, no, don't say nibbles. Um, in any event, um, uh, we have a, a number of topics we want to look at today, all super practical topics, I think, all with great takeaways for you. So. Looking forward to jumping into it. You know, Proverbs 19 says this. It says, what everyone desires is unfailing love. What everyone desires is unfailing love. I think when I came across that proverb, my wife and I were talking, and we realized, you know, yeah, whatever conflicts we were having with our children or other people that got under our skin, at the end of the day, what everyone really desired, what they're after, what they want from all of us is some sense of unfailing love. Of course, we are pretty horrible at delivering that. Uh, we're not up to the task of delivering unfailing love. You will, you have let your spouse down, you have let your friends down, you will let them down in the future. And uh, yet, though we cannot deliver unfailing love unfailingly, we still can be sacramental of that unfailing love uh, to our spouses, to our friends. That is, those means through which God does manifest his unfailing love uh, because God delegates so much of what he does in the world to human beings. So for each of us, that's what we are. We are a, a conduit of God's unfailing love, however inconsistent we are in ourselves, but our means by which God does his work in the world. And of course, we are a significant conduit for our friends and spouses of delivering unfailing love to them. And... Um, interesting insight that comes from, I don't, you may not know this name, but a guy named John Gottman is sort of America's marriage guru. Gottman has written a whole bunch of books on marriage, has uh, done a lot of research, has something he calls the Love Lab, um, where uh, he does research on marriages. But one of the things they've discovered is that it's not so much the negative things that undo a marriage. I think we usually think that. Oh, it's this, these negative dynamics uh, uh, unruly dynamics in our relationship that undo us. But as they have looked at couples across the board, it's actually not the negative things that undo a marriage. It's the lack of positive things that undo a marriage. And so he talks about there needing to be uh, positive regard, mutual positive regard in marriages, that that is almost always across the board essential. And what they have discovered is that and they've been able to predict with 93% accuracy which couples would stay together and which would break up on the basis of whether there was roughly a ratio of five positive interactions to every one negative 
interaction. Now that might seem Herculean <laughs> until you realize what he means by positive interactions. And one of the real helpful things that Gottman talks about is what he calls bids for connection. Bids for connection. Really life-giving concept when you get hold of it. And he says simply all healthy couples engage in these all of the time. And so they are little gestures, little uh, movements toward one another. So for instance, we're walking down the street and you say, oh, look at that tree there. You know, you, you draw attention to something. Does your spouse attend to that or do they ignore it? Uh, you're in the kitchen and you're making a meal and you just touch your spouse on the shoulder or you smile at them. Do they respond, even in the simplest way, back to that or do they ignore it? Um, do they give you the cold shoulder when you touch <laughs> their shoulder? Uh, it says those bids for connection, he says healthy couples engage in those again and again and again. And part of it is because we long for connection. God built us that way. Um, but of course, our relationships can get distorted and we can start to feel a distance growing in them. There are things that get on our nerves or we've been wounded in some way by a spouse and we, we start to pull away. So this notion uh, of, of trying to be a little self-conscious, uh, and mostly these are spontaneous, our bids for connection, um, but being a little self-conscious about them can be helpful, particularly if you try and you know, just go through a day and say, wow, how many, how many of those did I engage in or did we engage in? No one responds to every bid, right? Sometimes we, we're busy in something and we, we ignore a bid. That's absolutely fine. You're going to do that. But to know that we are giving bids ourselves and to then simultaneously do our best to make sure we're responding, that we're not, again, treating our partner coldly um, is, is quite important. And when you start to recognize those are the positive interactions that Gottman is talking about, you realize, okay, this is not so Herculean. It's not about doing these like wonderful, dramatic, heroic um, things on behalf of our spouse. So on the one hand, when we think of um, connection with each other, we think of these spontaneous means of connection, what again, uh, Gottman calls bids for connection. But there is a second sort of connections that I think are uh, radically important. It's what I call rituals of connection. Now, interestingly enough, as I was starting to do marriage counseling, and I started to do it pretty early in my, my life in New York City, and I had no idea what I was doing at first. I came out of my first marriage counseling situation, uh, Tim Keller had thrown me into it, said, would you look after this couple? And they weren't even attached to the church. And uh, she had, he had just cheated on her, and, they had, and I was completely unprepared for what to do. And this, I just came out of that situation sweating. And uh, I was of no help to them whatsoever. I immediately went and ordered five books on marriage counseling. And next thing I knew, I was starting to fall in love with it. But as I was doing it in my early days, I started to realize this common denominator between healthy couples, couples that were, and actually common denominator between unhealthy couples, uh, and it was that they did not have rituals in their life that they could do sort of unthinkingly that just naturally happened, but were just like brushing your teeth or breathing or eating breakfast. Uh, you didn't think about them, you just did them. And uh, I thought I was onto something. I thought, oh yeah, these are rituals of connection. And I thought I'd made this great discovery, and then I went on the web 
you know, on the internet and realized, oh yeah, this is all over the internet. So it's sort of like Columbus discovering America. I, uh, you know, I sort of rediscovered something that had already been discovered, or I discovered it at least for myself. Um, in any event, I do think these are profoundly important. And so what we want to do this morning is reflect a little bit on the kinds of uh, rituals for connection we might have. You know, one of the things that is certainly true, and those of you who, again, who have been at this for a long while know it, and a lot of people don't know it who are first getting into marriage, is that marriage is the most, um, uh, the, one of the, the, the least automatic things on the planet, right? Having a good marriage is, is not automatic at all. Actually, what's automatic is having a bad marriage. That's easy to do. But having a good marriage, one again that gives life, um, is, is the least automatic thing on the planet, which is to say marriages take work. Now, my wife doesn't like that because she's saying, you're saying I'm work? <laughs> no, dear, you're not work. Um, marriages take effort. Okay, that's a little better. Okay, marriages definitely take effort. They do. Um, and yet, you know, when you develop habits in your life, and human beings are inherently, God has made us habit-forming creatures, um, you begin to do these things naturally without thinking about them. And therefore, though you're putting the effort in, it doesn't feel like a lot of effort. It doesn't, doesn't drain you to do it. And again, couples that are healthy have recognized, whether they've thought about it consciously or not, um, that they are habit-forming creatures, or they've just simply formed those habits. And uh, those habits, again, are at the heart of, of their marriage really thriving. So let's think about what some of these habits might be. And I'll give you my number one habit that I think every couple should engage in. And I actually, whenever I'm working with marriage crises, almost no couple has anything like this in their life. They might have had it for a period of time, but they've let it go for a long season. And it's what I call date night, but that is a euphemism. <laughs> because it's not really about going out for a nice meal or getting dressed up. It's about time that you set aside purposefully with your spouse where you are emotionally present and you just talk about life together without other distractions around you. So Rebecca and I again fell into this by accident. We would be driving home from church on Sunday nights and there was this Mexican restaurant. We just started to, to, to stop by it every Sunday evening on our way home. This is when we were in Philadelphia. And then that just became a practice. And so pretty much for all 38 years of our marriage, we've gone out nearly every Sunday night. Um, we might miss four nights a year. Occasionally we'll invite another couple in. But, uh, but then we, if we do that or if we miss, almost always we do it on the subsequent night of the week. Um, and so here's what we do. We go to the exact same place every Sunday night. Sometimes we mix it up. But usually it's the exact same place. Uh, we do not order dinner because dinner is a distraction from conversation and it brings a waitress or a waiter to your table far too often. Um, we do put our phones down. Uh, again, we are away from the house and therefore away from dishes that are calling out to us to clean or bills that need to be paid or the television that's on uh, or any such thing that might distract us. And we, try, we have chosen a place that has at least an air of romance about it. There's a candle on the table. And, um, 
We order a bottle of wine for 20 bucks, which is a steal, of course, when you go out. So we found a place that we could do that. And we just sit for a leisurely hour and a half or two hours, and we talk. Now, one of the euphemisms for our Sunday nights is Sunday night at the fights. <laughs> because that's what we do sometimes, is we fight on our Sunday evenings. And it's, it's, there's no topic that is off limits. Uh, you are actually not allowed to be exhausted on Sunday night. Again, we all have the capacity of self-control, and so even if we're feeling exhausted, and we do give each other a pass every once in a while, but generally speaking, you're expected to, be, to show up and to show up with your ability to give your full attention to your partner, to your spouse. And though we do fight about things, that's not all we do. Otherwise, we'd never go on date night, <laughs> right? It still has to be most, all, overall, has to be a pleasant experience. So we'll go over calendars. We'll talk about what we read in the Times. We'll talk about our kids. We'll talk about things at church. We'll talk about how we're doing. Um, but then if there are topics that need to be addressed, um, and sometimes we know about them ahead of times, and sometimes they come up in the midst of the conversation, we address those topics there. Now, sometimes we go to date night knowing that there's been tension in our life during the past week. And so we know that's on the agenda. Um, and more often than not, we walk home in peace about those things, hand in hand, uh, aware that we've worked through uh, a difficulty in our life and have come to some place of agreement about it. Of course, there's other nights when we go in and it's all sunshine and roses until something comes up and we walk home 10 yards apart from each other, sort of in a, you know, in a stew, in a silence. And uh, I suppose, you know, for some people that would be intimidating. One of the reasons, uh, and we're going to talk about fighting later, but one of the pe reasons people are afraid of fighting is because it does cause that alienation. You think, well, just better to have this um, uh, sort of banal peace. Uh, between us rather than the tensions that come with raising a hard issue, particularly if we know we might have a hard time getting through that issue. But once you start to do this regularly, um, Rebecca and I simply have developed the art of conversation and we've developed the art of fighting well. We've worked at both those things. I still remember, again, first years of marriage, we were out to dinner someplace and we were enjoying conversation with each other, but we looked at some of the tables around us and here were these long married couples not saying anything to each other. Right? And we thought, we do not want to be that couple when we get older. And so um, I don't necessarily like to talk for three hours straight, but I can. Because <laughs> my wife has, has trained me uh, well in that. And uh, it's a great skill that, that we've developed over the years. So, uh, so a date night is something that you do. And again, the frequency might change a little bit when you have small children. And you need to figure out you know, you may have seasons where you can't get out of the house, but again, I would recommend that being the thing you strive to do. And I would simply say, some of you are newly married or about to get married. If you build this into your relationship from the very start um, and uh, keep at it for a season, you'll say, oh, I can't live without this. Because that's pretty much where Rebecca and I with our, are with our date night. Uh, we look forward to it. I can't imagine going very long without that kind of connection with her. And um, so here's another thing that we need to know. You see, the primary enemy of marriage is actually, well, that may be a stretch to say it's the primary, a significant enemy of marriage is sloth. 
just laziness. It's just taking the relationship for granted. And many, many couples, some of you here undoubtedly, have fallen into that, are in that pattern right now. But again, uh, you don't drift into having a good marriage. No one has ever drifted into having a good marriage. The only way you have a good marriage is if you put the effort in, if you work at it. But again, by ritualizing things, uh, you take the effort out of the effort is one way to think about it. So let me commend to you, even if you have been married for 40 years <laughs> uh, and you're not doing something like this, uh, the, the date night. Um, you know, the, we know the waitress well. She, uh, when I make Rebecca cry, she knows how to keep her distance. She knows what we're going to order. Um, she's, you know, she's attentive to us, but she knows we're there connecting. And um, so, so cultivating a habit like that, a ritual like that, is just essential. When I'm working with couples in crisis and I start to help them do this, first of all, they have a very hard time with it at first because, again, they're already at a place of tension. Um, and so you keep the date night shorter <laughs> initially. Uh, even 20 minutes or 30 minutes is, is a great thing initially. You know, you actually, some, maybe you have to build up the muscles. You might think, two hours? No way. Uh, so start with, start with 30 minutes, um, but try to get out of the house, um, make it a place that's a pleasant environment, um, and enjoy each other. Uh, but there's all sorts of other rituals in our life. One of the other ones that we developed very early in our married life was whoever got up first in the morning brought the other person a cup of coffee. And, um, you know, at that stage in our lives, we were sort of probably trading off and on for a bit, and then it primarily became me. And then for about a 10-year period, it was primarily Rebecca who brought the cup of coffee. But most days, that is just a simple act of service built into our life. And I'm a big believer that uh, when you do certain things, it begets that same thing again and again. So to you know, make the effort to say, hey, I'm not only just making a cup of coffee for myself, I'm going to make it a second cup and bring it to my spouse, that begets other acts of service. Again, just the way I think we're made as human beings. And um, so on the one hand, it was just a way of saying, hey, I love you, I value you, in a very simple way that was, again, you didn't even think about it. You just did it. But you still received it always of, oh, that was an act of kindness. Now, it became especially important to bring that cup of coffee when we were mad at each other, right? In fact, if you did not bring the cup of coffee when we were ticked off at each other, that was considered the hugest of violations of the ritual uh, because that's where you're saying, oh, he really isn't on my side or she really isn't on my side. But when you bring that cup of coffee and you're still mad at the person, you approach them and you think, I think I'm gonna spill it on them. No, you don't. You, um, you put it down silently by their bedside and you say, here's your coffee. And because um, you, you, know, you can't get rid of that entirely. But when you do that, what does it do? And we know what this does. It serves as an olive branch, right? And it, it melts both the receiver's heart and the giver's heart. And it doesn't mean you solve everything. You still have to be able to have that fight and make your way through whatever the issue is. But it's a way of still saying, I'm on your side. Now, again, there's a zillion of these rituals. Uh, there's rituals of coming and going, right? So uh, do you give a hug or a kiss? Do you just make sure you see each other before you head out the door? That's one that a lot of couples engage in. Uh, I know one couple, 
uh, and I'm going to give you a chance to discuss rituals in your lives that either you have already that you may not have identified, and perhaps you'll hear from other people at the table rituals they have. Um, you think, oh, we could adopt that one. But I, I remember one couple, they, uh, when they get up, whoever gets up first puts toothpaste on the other person's toothbrush. That's just weird from my perspective, but hey, um, you know, you, you figure out what these rituals are, but you can see how that connects people, right? All those simple things that you do. Uh, couples take walks together, right? Um, any, any number of things that, uh, that, you, that you might engage in. Rebecca and I have taken to, uh, rituals come in various sizes and shapes and various frequencies as well. So there's daily rituals, there's week, weekly rituals, there's monthly rituals. Some couples uh, make an effort at getting away once a month to an Airbnb or something like that. Uh, Rebecca and I, about 15 years ago, when we finally had enough uh, disposable income to do it, took to having a, um, a warm weather vacation every winter. Uh, and so two weeks from now, we're going to the DR. And um, we have that worked out really in a, a wonderful way. She likes her mornings by herself, so she reads in the morning. I golf in the morning. And then at lunch, from lunch on, we spend the rest of the day together. We'll read, we usually read a book together during that time, but we have lots of conversation. Um, and so just connection after connection, it's a way of rebooting, renewing our relationship, make sure that our physical intimacy is uh, reignited, renewed during that time. And uh, this, you know, as we think about rituals of connection, Sex, of course, and physical intimacy is also a ritual of connection. The problem for some couples is they haven't ritualized it, right? Uh, society tells us that sex should be just spontaneous, right? And should just come naturally. Well, when you're young, maybe. <laughs> the older you get, the less it becomes spontaneous. But most marriage counselors would suggest it's still radically important for our marriages, no matter what our age. And it can come in various shapes and sizes. Lots of marriage uh, counselors distinguish between sensuality and sexuality and say actual rituals of sensuality, which are physical acts, but not necessarily leading to full on uh, sex with one another, are also very important to relationships. So simply to sit on the couch next to each other, holding hands while you watch a television show to rub your partner's feet or their shoulders or their back, um, just simple ways of touching. And researchers have mostly found that that's what goes first in a relationship. It's not sex that goes first in the relationship, it's sensuality that goes first in a relationship. We just stop touching. But my guess is, and some of you younger couples may not know this, but probably many of the older couples in the congregation have learned to schedule their, their physical sexual intimacy with one another. Uh, Rebecca and I have done that for years. And again, it sounds like to some people unromantic, but I want to suggest to you that it's super romantic. <laughs> that romance is not again doing the extravagant things. It's actually saying, I'm committed to our marriage and therefore let's do those things that make sure we're tending to our marriage. Let's put the rituals in place. And so it does take also, when you ritualize sex, it takes out a fair amount of stress from the relationship. Uh, you know, for, for women who have motors, by and large, that take longer to warm up, 
It's a way of being able to say, oh, I know this is coming. Let, my, let me, you know, be ready for that in all the ways that I, you know, need to be ready for that. And for men, it takes out the fear of rejection. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that prevents sex from happening in relationships. Don't worry, we're not going to talk about sex much longer. But uh, I did want to talk about it a little bit. Uh, I have a whole talk that I could give, but I'm not doing that today because um, it's, it's actually profoundly important. Uh, Michelle Weiner Davis is, uh, wrote a book called The Sex-Starved Marriage. And one of the things that she discovered uh, is that, yeah, it, it's not so much uh, the, the lack of sex in a marriage that would lead her to call it a sex-starved marriage, but it's the different desires of the spouses. And she says it's interesting, in a lot of other areas of life, when we have different desires for different things, um, we learn to compromise on that. She says, however, when it comes to sex, what tends to happen is the couple who has the littlest sex drive sets the tone of the marriage. And she says, that's super destructive. That in the same way that we compromise in other areas, you know, we ought to be moving towards each other and finding the right rhythms for sexual and physical intimacy in our lives as well. So again, for me and Rebecca, we know we're going to have sex at least once a week. We know what day and roughly what time. <laughs> and again, to some people that seems awful strange, but actually for us, pretty wonderful. <laughs> and uh, so uh, something to think about when it comes to thinking about uh, rituals of connection. What else do I have written here? Do, to do, to do. Uh, yeah, so prayer is another ritual of connection. Uh, you know, something that you ritualize in your life. I don't think we've ritualized that in the way we have some other things. And again, we need to recognize rituals change over time. Uh, they have a shelf life. Some go on forever and ever. Others die out. So we're not so much doing the bring each other cup of coffee thing. It's the way our house is set up now. It doesn't work as well as it used to, to work. And so that has sort of dropped out of our lives. Uh, but there's other things that come to take, it pl take its place. Um, but we've done prayer very differently at different times in our life. So there was a season where it was very hard to do because the kids were small and just finding the right place. Uh, it became far more rare. As the kid got, kids got older, we found that one of the great times to pray was before they got up in the morning. And we were up earlier for our own devotional times. So we just take 10 minutes after our own personal devotional times and pray with each other. Now we do it about three evenings um, a week, and we use um, uh, Compline, which is the Episcopalian in the Episcopalian prayer book. It's a, an evening prayer service uh, in which there's both the reading of Psalms, but also a time for extemporaneous prayer. Now, some of you actually may find it hard to pray together, and let me recommend a great resource to you. This was written years ago. It's John Bailey's. He was a Presbyterian minister, Scottish Presbyterian minister, I believe. It's called A Diary of Private Prayer. And in the Diary of Private Prayer, there's a prayer for every morning and every evening of every day of the month. So it's day one, day two, through day 31, and then there's Sunday prayer as well. And um, just actually using those prayers as a springboard to your own prayer life. If you need something to jumpstart you. You know, we don't need to create our prayer lives out of whole cloth. Um, we can stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and uh, use their prayers in our lives. Okay, I want to get us to conversation with each other. Um, so let me just say, um, uh, the, yeah, you know, other sorts of rituals, rituals of um, 
uh, mission that you might go to do a service project together. And again, my brother last night who raised this up, by all means, you can have your own individual things that you do in terms of mission, and you can cheer each other on in those things. But it's wonderful to have some things together. And so for many couples, learning to do hospitality well is a great gift that we can give to our world. Uh, you know, in hospitality, you sort of invite people into your home and you give them a sense, hopefully, of their worth and their value, because a lot of people lack that. Uh, what, a, what a gift we're able to, to know God's love and our own worth and value and give that to others. So rituals of mission, rituals of fun. Um, Rebecca's gotten into pickleball lately, and so I'm trying to take that up. Um, and uh, so some of you might do that together. But there's all sorts of things that you might ritualize in your life to connect you with each other. And uh, so simply end on this. You know, some couples say, we just don't have time for that. And I'll say, no, actually what you don't have is time not for that. <laughs> because they'll say, well, you know, our children just require so much time. And I simply want to say the most important thing you can give your children is a great relationship between the two of you. Right? And uh, couples who understand that, that's actually quite liberating. <laughs> right? It's just, we, we, we fall into these false ideas of self-sacrifice sometimes that are not beneficial to us or to the people around us. So tend the home fire, rituals of connection. Um, so you'll find again in front of you questions uh, to work through. Uh, I take about seven or so minutes, uh, ten, eight minutes to talk as a couple and then uh, I'll call us together to have couples discussions and then we'll talk together as a family together. Go to it. together some meals together is the biggest one uh, we're only because we have small kids we only can really do dinner together I wake up earlier than my wife and things like that and the other one for me was uh, we both work at home and so different jobs but we're like office buddies and so we do water cooler talk all day pretty much so it's really nice because you guys go to the water cooler together in your house I love that um, yeah actually you know when you say meals it just makes me think of actually chores can be a connecting ritual, right? So folding the laundry together, making a meal together, doing the dishes together. Uh, you can actually enjoy those things. In fact, they're more fun when you do them with another person a lot of times. But also it should be said that a ritual needs to be enjoyable to both people <laughs> to be a ritual of connection. Otherwise, it's just a chore. Uh, other things. Yes, yeah, please, good. Microphone's coming. No, I just brought up that my husband starts the coffee every every day, so I've come accustomed to a full coffee pot in the morning. But I was just saying what's really neat is that my 12-year-old son now, when he goes away on business trips, he has been starting the coffee pot. So that ritual has passed on to our son. That's great. <laughs> That's very fun. You chip off the old block. He's taken up dad's habit. That's excellent. Train him well. Train up a child in the way they should go. Um, we were, we have really young kids and we, three in nine months right now, so dinner time is pretty chaotic, depending on who's screaming and who's acting like a dog, you know, at our dinner table. But um, one thing we've started and are trying to work on is making that a special time and lighting candles and getting a bottle of wine out, just 
our kids love that and it gives them a sense that this is not just like a time of just gobbling down our food and so and we're going to try to work on after they're done eating like allowing them to just leave and go play and let us keep sitting there to actually have a time of conversation because by bedtime we're both we're all it's kind of one of the only opportunities in the day at this stage of life to have a conversation so anyway that's something we're gonna try to work on hey that's great um so, yeah, both meals, but meals by dressing them up a little bit. We used to do a Sabbath dinner in our house where we had a little liturgy that we did before uh, on a Saturday evening dinner. We'd light candles, we'd have bread and grape juice, and we would go and lay our hands on each of the kids and pronounce a blessing on them. Another one of those things that connect us not only as a couple, but as a family, too. And I love the idea of just the 10 minutes afterwards, right? Rituals don't have to be extravagant, saying, yeah, wait till 8.30, one of us is going to be a pumpkin by then, so let's actually just do this right after the meal, even that 10 minutes to connect and say, you guys go scream elsewhere, we're going to enjoy each other's company, and saying, hey, let's really be present for each other, phones away, even for that 10 minutes. Those are great things, simple things like that. Other, other things that came up at your tables. For me, in our household, greetings and are very important. We wake up together, we make eye contact, we hug, we kiss. You walk out that door, someone recognizes that you're gone for the day, and when you come back, you're greeted back home because your home is your sanctuary. And this is where we have to have, um, we have to be acknowledged as humans. You have to be, you, you go do the fight out there, but in the house, you have to have that connection, you have to greet. And it drives me nuts if there's no greeting mm. and there's a physical hug or a kiss from anybody. I'm also Latin, so for me, that greeting, you know, we kiss everybody, but in my household with my own daughter who's over there, you know, she's like, yep, you know, it's like, you didn't wake up with me. You need to say good morning, give me a kiss, you know, like that's very important, and I feel like if my husband walks out the door, if I walk out the door without a, a, a goodbye, it's just like offensive to me. Yeah. It's, there's got to be the good night, goodbye, have a good day, you know, I don't care what's going on. Um, yeah, and Praying before we get on an airplane, praying when we depart. We, we've been apart a lot this past couple of years. and A lot of prayer the, in your life way, then. That's yeah, great. The way you leave is very important. Yeah. Um, the way there's a ritual to how you leave. Love that. Um, yeah, she didn't hear that. Just the, the, the way of waking up, you know, just not ignoring each other. Um, yeah, I'm so grateful in our marriage. We almost always every morning still laugh together. We just, one of us does something stupid to make the other person laugh, you know, and, uh, but yeah, making sure you, there's great times for the combination of a ritual of connection and sensuality of simple hug or a, a kiss on the lips before you head out the door, simply saying good morning. All those things that humanize our relationships and keep us together. Anything else? Come on, someone's got to have something really strange. Come on, someone top the toothpaste one. Okay. So, um, it's worth saying also that there are actually anti-rituals. Like, for instance, um, when we first got married, putting up the Christmas tree was an anti-ritual. It's gotten a lot easier since they've made the stands bigger. But back then, just getting the tree straight, Rebecca would be there trying to help me. I'd like, could you just leave? Um, yeah. So we have these things that like turn us against each other. And then, you know, you learn to say, you know, sometimes actually going to, for certain people, the in-law relationship is fraught with a fair amount of tension. It's still important to do. You do it. You go to the in-law's house. But but, you know, sometimes those relationships aren't what we wish they were, and yet we do these things regularly. Just recognizing, yeah, this is usually not a good time for us. 
This actually sets tensions into place rather than connection. So let's just be aware of that. Let's be, try to be extra kind and just, you know, recognize that dynamic and not let it get the best of us. So we almost always have some of those anti-rituals too. Jeff, there was a question texted in um, more on the lines of marital connection and just maybe touch on what about the church community and friendships? How and how would you say those affect marital connection? Certainly they do. Um, and maybe those tie into um, somehow identifying certain rituals too within your marriage, but I don't know. Yeah, so you I mean obviously we do have things in the, the question was in church life, you know, do we have connections there for sure, or rituals of connection. So, you know, sometimes we have couples groups together or we we're at least go to a community group together. That's certainly a ritual of connection. You know, for me and Rebecca, it's the subway ride there and the subway ride back home and talking about things. And so, yeah, it's, it's certainly these connections are done with other people, but then actually doing things with other people, again, gives us fodder to, to reflect on and enjoy each other and make sure we have, you know, again, cultivating the gift of conversation together. But for sure, that happens not just by ourselves, but in the company of other people as well. Follow up to that, how would you speak towards, I know this is very subjective, the balance of those things? Because you need, need both, you need one-on-one -on -one connection ritually, right, in the ways that we've just got done talking about. But you also need, as you mentioned before, to be, um, your marriage to be, you know, public in one sense. And so to be connected to friendships and the church community. Is there an idea yeah, of balance there for you in that as you? That's probably different for each couple. You know, the, the thing about balance is ba balance is inherently dynamic, right? Which is to say, you don't just balance, you're always finding balance. Right, so it's, balance is not a static thing. When you're on a bike, whether you know it, your body's responding every second to keeping the balance. And so I think it's just, that's part of your conversation together. Hey, are we doing this well? But again, my chief concern is couples that don't have enough rituals. It, um, you know, so, so, so I, that's where I just wanted to put the emphasis today. But yeah, we need to think through those things as well. Is second breakfast ready yet? Not quite. Not quite. Okay, well, so, all right. So, let's jump in. Yes, go ahead, please. I have a weird connection thing. I might top the toothpaste thing. Okay, but excellent. But it's not with, within marriage. This is not going to be embarrassing to your husband, is no, it? No, because actually okay. within friendship. Can I share one with friendship? Yeah, sure. So, there's a weird, this person's in the room, so I hope she'll laugh. But um, <laughs> we, have weird, we had a weird ritual, just ended recently, of sleeping on the floor at a military base, waiting to get next year's vacation rental. And we did that for years and years and years and then we brought our kids in and then they did it and then we get busted by the military police and it was a ritual it was something we did forever and it brought a lot of bonding between us and our families i love that so we can vacation the next year and we've been vacationing together for i don't know i don't know 15 years something like that, that that's a great one yeah get busted by the police together once a year <laughs> go ahead go for it go for it um good stuff uh, let's just jump into our next topic. And uh, while we're waiting for second breakfast, let me st start off with a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien in a letter that he wrote to, uh, I don't know who he wrote it to, it's a letter of J.R.R. Tolkien's, but in it he says, every marriage is a mistake. Every marriage is a mistake, he says. And by that, um, he goes on to explain it. He says, in that, if, uh, if you actually spent more time looking you might find a partner out there who fits you just a little bit better or maybe even 
significantly better than the partner you ended up with. And he says, but at the end of the day, you know, even if you engage in that search, while there probably is that person out there, you may have never found them. And his point is simply this, that at the end of the day, you don't find a soulmate, you make a soulmate. You don't find a soulmate, you make a soulmate. But when we think about, you know, our, the fact that we don't always fit each other, uh, that we have different tastes and preferences, uh, we are sinners and we live selfishly at times, we have different expectations, some might be realistic, other expectations might be radically unrealistic of each other, but we bring them with us into the marriage. And all that is to say that invariably, you have in any relationship, disappointments, frustrations, unmet expectations. And the question becomes, what do you do with those? Do you remain silent about them? Well, lots of couples do. And therefore, bitterness just grows deep uh, at some level um, in the relationship, and the distancing grows in the relationship. But what we can say simply about marriage and conflict is this. Conflict begins in marriage the day you wake up and realize you did not marry yourself. <laughs> There's another person um, that you have to deal with and who's radically different from you in all sorts of ways and you've got to be able to work through those things. And so fighting is inevitable in marriage. Um, the difference between couples isn't couples that fight and couples that don't fight. It's couples that fight constructively and well and couples that fight destructively and harm their relationship and maybe harm themselves and maybe harm the relationship to a point of disrepair. And so what we wanna do uh, for the next number of minutes is to reflect a little bit on conflicts. Now, a conflict is any disagreement between two people on any issue, it need not be volatile. Conflict doesn't have to be uh, at a DEFCON level 10 or anything like that. It's just simply any difficult, any place of emotional tension in one or more of the parties, right? So, you know, if one person says, you know, we're having a conflict, and the other person says, no, we're not having a conflict. You're having a conflict, even over whether you're having a conflict or not. Um, Rebecca and I fight about whether we fight well. Um, <laughs> I say, oh, I see people who don't fight well, and trust me, we fight, we fight well. But she's suspicious of that at times still. Uh, so, you know, we, we make up things to fight about. Oh, yeah, let's fight about that. Um, but, uh, but all couples have these disagreements, and you have to be able to work them through. Now, there are basically five ways of fighting with each other. One way is simply to ignore the conflict, which is maybe the most destructive way of fighting. Uh, silent, but very deadly. Uh, and that, I'm pretty sure that was my parents' way of fighting. I never saw my parents fight. And I'm pretty sure that was one of the significant reasons for the demise of their relationship. A second way of fighting is yielding to the other person. Say, okay, we'll do it your way. Okay, we'll do it your way. Now, there's a lot of Christians who think, oh, that's the godly way to do it, to you know, consider another person's interest more important than your own. Yes and no. Uh, when should you yield? You should yield at times, and this is when you should yield, when it matters a whole lot to the other person and you could almost care less. And by all means, yield. But if you just yield all the time, again and again, sometimes that's avoiding 
relationship. It's like a high view of peace, but a low view of actual relationship. It's not, it's not really engaging with each other because maybe we're afraid of what will happen in that engagement. So yielding, yes, occasionally, but as a rule, usually the yielder over time thinks, why is this other person never yielding? Why am I doing all the yielding in the relationship? And that's not healthy. Uh, next way of dealing with conflict is to win. <laughs> and uh, just say, that's, that's what I'm out to do. I'm out to win in every conflict we have. And you know, that's, you know, that obviously is not conducive to a relationship. So there's, there's ignoring, yielding, winning. And the last two sound similar, but I'm gonna suggest a difference between them. One is to compromise and the other is to resolve. And what I mean by compromise, and these are just semantic terms, but by compromise I mean you arrive at a premature solution. Maybe you're so afraid of conflict that you go right to solving the issue, but you haven't really heard each other out and therefore the solution doesn't take both people's pains, interests, concerns into account. Um, whereas in resolution, the first thing you do is you take time to listen and say, why is it so important, this thing's so important to my spouse or my friend? Because to the degree that I do that and I really stand in their shoes, I'm probably gonna come up with a better solution. Or even if I don't come up with a better solution, I'm still gonna be more sensitive or we're gonna be more sensitive to each other in that situation. So five ways of dealing with conflict. Again, conflict's not always volatile. Any disagreement is a conflict. People, some people are very validating in their ways they do conflict. Other people are a bit more volatile, but you can actually be more high intensity and still not do destructive things. So high intensity is not inherently destructive in a conflict. Some people just culturally raise their voices more. As long as everyone's okay with it, it's all right. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's not, if it feels intimidating to a person, then you need to say, no, that's not working for us. So what I wanna um, do now, and I'll get to this four horsemen that's on your outline, maybe in the content, the context of the rules, but I wanna go over the Geneva Convention rules of war <laughs> for how to have a fair fight in marriage. And um, this, this comes from, not me, uh, comes from a number of researchers who have looked at how to fight. There's actually a book called Fighting for Your Marriage by uh, Howard Markman and Jeffrey someone or another. But Howard Markman is the primary author. And it's interesting, this book has been written in a whole bunch of versions. There's like, you know, how to fight for your marriage, but then there's fighting for your Jewish marriage, and there's fighting for your African-American marriage, and then Christians, because we're weird, came up with a different title. It's not fighting for your Christian marriage, it's called a lasting bond. Because uh, we like to do that, we like to do that to our titles. Um, but uh, the books are essentially the same content with a little few uh, cultural things to, to be aware of. But how do we fight well in our marriage? So here are the rules. Rule number one, timing matters. Timing matters. What we frequently do is one of us feels suddenly passionate about this thing or we've been disturbed by something and so we're riled up on the inside and we just come at the other person. Now, sometimes that works but usually not because if the person's not prepared for it, you don't usually get the satisfaction of having a good discussion. They're just there reluctantly the whole time. And even if they're doing something as inane as playing solitaire on their phone, 
The better thing to do is say, hey, I have something I'd like to talk about. Is now a good time or when would be a good time? Sometimes just that 10-minute runway where they finish their game of solitaire or whatever they're doing enables them to sort of be prepared and then they're present and ready to interact over the thing. But timing matters immensely. Uh, I saw a couple, a couple years ago, I'd done their premarital counseling. They came to me about a year into their marriage. They said, oh, you know, we're, we're fighting a lot more now. And I said, well, come in and see me. Let's talk about it a little bit. I'm listening, I'm listening. And uh, finally I say, tell me this. Uh, do most of your fights take place after 9.30 at night? And they, they smiled a little and they said, oh yeah, exclusively. And I said, there you have it. Um, you know, your timing is off. I said, your, your homework is to not engage in any conflict after nine o'clock at night and then come back in a month and see me. Came back a month later, everything was fine. They just actually made that simple adjustment in their life and, you know, now this sometimes annoys certain people, like, because Rebecca and I will be fighting, and sometimes it'll be later, and I know we're going nowhere, but she is very stubborn, and she thinks we can get through this. And you'll see in one of the rules later, you're allowed to call a timeout, but it's a little infuriating to her when I do it. And we'll, she will talk about how to call a timeout without it being unfair, because you can do it in a way that weaponizes timeouts. But there's times when you just know we are cranky, and we're irritable, and we're weary, we are not getting anywhere on this. So timing matters. Secondly, tone matters, right? Some of us just have aggressive tones. And to be able to meta-communicate, which is communicate about your communication, is a skill that most healthy couples have. So just simply to be able to say, hey, you know, I really care about us getting through this, but your tone is, is really harsh right now. If you could if you could soften that a little bit, that'd be really helpful to me. Um, just being able to say simple things like that because our tone does matter. So timing matters, tone matters. Next rule, if I recall, uh, separate problem discussion from problem solving, what we were talking about before. Don't try to rush to a resolution. Take time to hear each other out, really important. Separate problem discussion from problem solving. Number four, one issue at a time. <laughs> People violate this all the time. They don't even know they're violating it. So, uh, I think I want to go to, to have Chinese for dinner. Uh, I'd like to go Italian. Uh, I really want Chinese. Uh, I really want Italian. Yeah, but you always get your way. <clears throat> Second issue. Second issue, you always get your way is different from whether we're going to eat Italian or Chinese tonight for dinner. And you're actually not going to get through both those things at the same time. In fact, you have really complicated things immensely by talking about whether you get your way or not. Um, because those are about the power rules in a relationship, and that's immensely complicated stuff. Sometimes people think they don't have the power when they're exercising all the power in the relationship. So, um, but one issue at a time, critically important. With the preliminary rules out of the way, the next rule is use what some counselors call the speaker-listener technique. And that is where one person speaks at a time, they have the floor, as it were, and they give voice to their concerns about the said issue that we're having conflict over. Let's say me and Rebecca are talking about, should we go to bed together, is it okay for us to go to bed at different times? 
right? And so one person gets the floor and they say, well, here's the reason why I think we should go to bed together. And, and then the other person's job is not to rebut that, not to provide counter evidence, but simply to repeat back what the other person has said. Um, and so you say, okay, what I hear you saying is the reason you think we should go to bed together is such and such and such a thing. Now let me say, first of all, only use this not as regular conversation in your family's life. You'll drive each other crazy. You only use this when things are kind of intense. Um, but when they're intense, it's a great and important thing to do. And uh, Rebecca and I don't just naturally go into it. We, or we, just say, we don't say, hey, let's use the speaker tech listener technique. Usually one of us knows we're not being heard and we just sort of slow it down. We say, hey, love, what did you hear me saying? Because we do misinterpret each other because we decide ahead of time what the person is saying, or uh, we refuse to say what they said back because we think it means we agree with them. But actually, you're just acknowledging you've heard what they've said. You're not necessarily agreeing with it. You can vehemently disagree while still saying, hey, here's what I hear you saying. Right, so one person gets the floor at a time. Some people suggest you have an object that you put back and forth between each other. You know, you know if you have the listening rock, you know, or the speaking rock, which I don't recommend a rock, um, but uh, <laughs> like feather. Oh yeah, you, you have the feather, you can speak. Um, but you, uh, you go back and forth and you actually just take time to hear each other out. And once the one person has spoken, now the other person gets the floor and now they can rebut. They can say, you know, well, here's why I think we shouldn't, don't need to go to bed all, all the time together. And, you know, and here's why I don't even think you'll like it, um, or whatever the case might be. You start to spell those things out, and you just seed the floor back and forth to each other while you work your way through the conflict. Again, don't do that all the time, but intense times, really helpful because we are classic misinterpreters. We have decided ahead of time what the person really means by what they're saying, when they may not mean that at all. Usually they don't. So slowing it down, use the speaker-listener technique. While you do that, you need to keep a number of other things in mind, and I can't remember my order here, so let me go back up here at this point in time. Okay, yes. Uh, so avoid mind reading, just said that. Use I language rather than you language, which by that I mean, uh, rather than saying, you tried to hurt me when you did such and such a thing. You say, I felt like you were trying to hurt me when you did such and such a thing. That actually may seem almost the same thing, but it actually softens the tone of the conversation. Because here's what you're trying to do in any conflict, is you're trying to get a lot of light on the subject and very little heat on the subject. In other words, you're trying to de-escalate. Because what we tend to do is escalate, 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 and it gets more and more intense, and there's lots of heat and very little light, and then you can't work through the problem. Um, so everything that you can do to de-escalate the intensity of the discussion gets you to a place where you can actually really hear each other. There's lots of light on it. Now we can work it through very little heat. So much, many of these additional rules are about de-escalation. Uh, another thing, avoid catastrophic language. And by that, I mean primarily always and never. Never use language always and never because it's never true. <laughs> And it may seem like a small thing, but to the person who's being accused of always doing something or never doing anything, they think, well, that's not at all true. 
And so what it does is it escalates at that point in time. So uh, let me give you permission to say this. With nauseating frequency, <laughs> you do such and such a thing. That is actually, believe it or not, less volatile. And it's a little funny. <laughs> so, um, so do not use the phrases always and never um, uh, because simply it escalates. Um, avoid inflammatory language and gestures. So expletives, name calling, you know, my, uh, the walls of my office do not have virgin ears. <laughs> the things that couples say to each other can get pretty crazy. Uh, but obviously that escalates. You know, when a, when a person says, you make me sick. You know, or, you know, oh, we should just get divorced. You know, those, you can't take those stuff back, right? You really can't. And some of it takes a long time to recover from. So avoiding inflammatory language, but also gestures. Gestures can be just as condescending. <sighs> or rolling the eyes. All these things we do uh, to communicate to our spouse something of our contempt for them. And that's what, um, you know, that's one of Gottman's four horsemen of the apocalypse of communication is contempt. Um, and so that, that can happen both in our language and in our gestures. Another of them is criticism. And what Gottman does is he says, rather than criticize, what you want to do is, um, is critique. And he distinguishes those simply by saying, one of them is attacking the problem and the other is attacking the person. Right? And so let's just take a classic example in the early years of marriage. The toilet seat continues to be left up in the middle of the night. And I don't know why the rule is that the toilet seat is supposed to be down, but that's the rule. And so we all go into marriage knowing that. It gets left up. Your wife, you know, goes to use the, re the restroom in the middle of the night. Unpleasant experience. What do you do? Do you scream out, James, you inconsiderate pig? That would be a criticism. I would be attacking the person. Or do you say, hey, sweetheart, the toilet seat continues to be left up in the middle of the night. What will we do about it? <laughs> That's attacking the problem, not the person. Um, so, uh, and there you go. You bring in the tone as well, right? It's all there. It's all good. Um, so attack, um, attack the problem, not the person. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, Catastrophic language issues. Use repair mechanisms to soothe your partner. So again, repair mechanisms are just when you're in the middle of something heated and you want to try to de-escalate it. Uh, and it can be simple things by simply just saying, hey, you know, I want you to know this is hard for us right now and, you know, we're both getting, you know, a little irritated, but I just want you to know I love you and I really do want us to work through this. There's other things you can do, but some of them potentially backfire, right? You touch your spouse. Don't touch me when we're having a fight, you know? Or you make a simple joke. You joke about everything. So, you, have, you know, you have to figure out what works for your relationship. But repair mechanisms, it's just simply reaffirming your commitment and your love and your desire to work through the problem can be really helpful in those situations. And again, all these things require self-control, brothers and sisters, um, you know, because our natural tendency is to do some of these things, you know, ugly human beings that we frequently are. Uh, we fall into condescending, contemptuous, uh, criticizing kinds of behavior. 
Um, the other two um, horsemen of the apocalypse are um, defensiveness, which again gets you nowhere. You know, either simply, oh yeah, well you do such and such a thing. You know, that's bringing up a second problem, and it doesn't actually solve anything, right? So, uh, so avoiding defensiveness and saying, okay, work through your problem, and then boy, do I have one for you. <laughs> but make sure you keep that second, because one issue at a time. And then the last one has to do with the next rule, uh, which is um, calling a timeout, which when used destructively is clamming up, right, which is stonewalling. Um, now, the research is in, and 84% of the stonewallers in relationships are men. <laughs> yeah, you knew that already. Um, men, actually, for whatever reason, it's interesting, they've done physiological uh, research on husbands and wives when they fight. And women look like they're a lot more emotionally uh, aroused, but it's men whose heart rate, blood pressure, they're sweating, um, all this sort of stuff is going on internally in men. Outside, we're cool as a cucumber. Um, but, uh, but inside, there's all this stuff boiling up. Um, so we, they, they postulate that maybe that's the reason we stonewall. We're trying to, danger Will Robinson, danger Will Robinson. We're trying to shut it all down. Um, but uh, stonewalling, obviously, to the person who's doing the stonewalling, they're thinking, uh, look at this spouse of mine, they're so emotional. I'm going to be above the fray. I'm just not going to interact at this level right now. And we think we're being the more moral person. Meanwhile, the other person says, your refusal to engage is an act of overt hostility, just so you know it. And it is. To not engage your spouse on something they want to talk about and just to stonewall is, is, is a weapon. Now, that doesn't mean, however that you can't call timeouts. Um, and again, whenever things get too volatile, uh, the, the people who have researched this say healthy couples give each other the freedom to call timeout whenever that is necessary, whenever they feel like things have stepped over the line. And again, it may just be it's too late at night. Or again, things do get heated in the conversation. You realize, okay, we just need to draw back for a little bit. But the way you prevent a timeout from being a weapon, which again is just shutting down conversation altogether, is to, re to say when you're gonna start the conversation up again. You know, and some people think, well, you're not supposed to let the sun go down on your anger. Doesn't Paul say that? And I say, yeah, but if you started arguing after nine o'clock at night, the sun was already down and you shouldn't have been angry in the first place. <laughs> um, Paul obviously is not trying to be taken literally there. He's trying to say, keep short accounts. Don't let things fester. Right? That's his core point in that. By all means, if you can prevent the sun from going down in your anger, you should. But the fact is, some, some things take a little while to work through. And there's some residual anger that exists there. We're going to talk about anger in the next talk a little bit. But, uh, but allowing for timeouts, uh, exceedingly important. And then, frankly, once you've done that through, now you've had your problem discussion, now you can brainstorm the problem by thinking through a number of possible solutions. You lay them all out there. Okay, neither Chinese or Italian, let's go Mexican. You know, uh, you know, or you're trying to figure out where to have a vacation. Say the beach, the mountains. Well, let's go to my parents. Oh no, anywhere but your parents. Um, so, so you work those things uh, through. and you, you, Then you actually need to put a plan behind the promise that you've made or the solution that you've come to so that it doesn't become mere good intentions. So it doesn't do any good to say, oh yeah, okay, we figured it out. We need to spend more time together. Yeah, we need to spend more time. 
But if you don't figure out when you're going to do that, you've, you've only just sort of raised the issue and haven't figured out how you're really going to address it. So you need a, a plan that actually has some teeth to it. Uh, and then actually, you can see if it works. If it doesn't work, you go back to the drawing board. Maybe you have further discussion. Maybe you just brainstorm a new solution. Uh, but healthy couples know how to fight well, not destructively, and they work through their problems one at a time. And they expect them. Conflict is built right into marriage. There is no escaping it. In fact, if you're not having any conflict, again, it probably means you're not really engaged with each other. You're going to have conflict. Excessive conflict, problematic, yes. Um, uh, and, and, and then we could talk about that. But that's not usually what's going on. Usually there's really, there's, there's hurts, there's, there's these different expectations we have, and we simply need to talk those through. Hey, I'm not happy with the way uh, we are splitting uh, who's doing housework in the home. Let's think through that. Let's talk about what's, what's a healthy way to do that in our house. Hey, I'm not happy with the amount of time we're spending together. I'm not happy that we're not going to be bed together at the same time. I'm not happy with how much you're drinking. Any number of different things. We have conflicts over a zillion different things, and working those through is, is significantly important. With this caveat, most researchers realize you don't have to work through every conflict. Uh, in other words, not everything needs to get resolved. Um, almost all couples have some unresolved issues that they never quite get through, but they understand each other on them. They don't feel completely unheard, uh, but, but not absolutely everything needs to be resolved. How do you distinguish what those are? I'm not entirely sure, but just simply to recognize uh, you can get overly obsessive about having to get through everything. Sometimes we just really do these things differently and we can find a way to just live at peace with that in our relationship because hopefully there's lots of other great dynamics in the relationship. All right, got questions in front of you. Second breakfast ready yet? Okay, we're checking now on second breakfast. Uh, hopefully between this time and the next time we'll have second breakfast. But again, talk amongst yourself as couples first and then uh, uh, at the table, and then we'll talk together. Fun to see uh, the interaction going on around the tables, and uh, you know, that's such an important part of, of our time together, is just you all interacting over your marriages and over the dynamics in your marriage. We, again, need, we need each other. Uh, in the Christian life in all sorts of ways. Um, and certainly, uh, we need other couples that we're interacting with. You know, one of the things, particularly in the early years of marriage, is people will come to see me and things aren't going so well. And frequently, young couples think that their problem is unique to them and no one else is having this problem. And in many cases, my primary job is simply to say, you know, uh, you know, welcome, <laughs> well, welcome to what we all go through. Uh, because uh, it's pretty... Pretty much all couples have the same dynamics, the same difficulties in one form or another, but uh, sometimes couples in the early years don't expect some of the difficulties to be coming their way. So for you just to be able to say welcome to the club, <laughs> to, uh, to, to some of your younger peers and brothers and sisters who are entering into the marriage game is a great thing. Um, but uh, what happened around your tables? interaction, but things, common themes, and then certainly any questions that you had. But what were some insights that came 
from the time, rules that you think should be added, rules that you think should be expelled. Um, uh, but what, uh, what do we hear around our tables? Jeff, while okay. people are thinking about that, maybe you just offer this question that just came in. Um, do you have tips for chronic conflict avoiders? How do you decide what is worth bringing up or when to have a discussion? Yeah, so, so yeah, and certainly some of us are chronic conflict avoiders and just sort of, again, recognizing the reasons people do avoid conflict first is they're not sure that they can make their way out of it, right? And that's why, again, having a set of rules can be really important because if you've had conflicts often enough and they've gone bad often enough, then you think, I don't know that I want to do this. Again, the uh, peaceful coexistence is certainly feels um, better than actually the, the potential pain that arises from the conflict. I, I, you know, ultimately, you do one of two things. You, you actually go easy on it and you actually start doing the date night thing and you, and you, you triage your issues and you, you start with something simple. Like again, as I said before, one of the primary things I do in crisis marriage counseling is I teach couples to fight and I make them fight in front of me. But part of that is also saying, hey, what are the th three to five things that you find you especially get in fights about? And then they'll sometimes list quite different things from each other, sometimes the same things. And then I say, well, let's triage them. And what's, you know, and I almost always know just by looking at the list, but I take something that's pretty far down the list, you know, not the most intense thing and say, let's, let's use the, you know, the, this, these rules and work through this particular issue. So I think part of it is just imploring your spouse to say, hey, this is a really important thing for us to talk about. It means a lot to me if you do it. And again, you do that in the right tone. But also, again, going back to the last talk, if you establish the ritual of a date night or a Sunday night of the fights or whatever you want to call it, uh, you start to do that and then you actually now have this space. You've created the space for it. And, and that's, that's step number one, is just creating the space for it. And sometimes you need counseling, let's just say that, you know, and it's, again, no grave admission. You know, we, we you know, again, it floors me that people go for, you know, second degrees and third degrees, they go to continuing education. Uh, also, they you know, spend four years getting a degree, they go get a master's degree, again, to do something that is far easier than being married. And yet we think we should just be able to s smoothly move into marriage and that somehow we have all the skills. Um, so going to a counselor, and again, as I said last night, need not be a long process, need not be a lot of money. A good counselor can, and actually, unfortunately, there's not a, great, a lot of great ones. I've run into a lot of bad ones. But a good counselor does not need to spend a lot of sessions with you um, to actually help you sort of reboot and get to a new place. It can be done pretty quickly in many situations. Uh, other questions? Yeah, please. Someone with the mic, bring that man a microphone. What's the worst professional advice you've heard from another counselor when it comes to conflict? Wow. I'll think about that and get back to you, okay? But that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, my, my mostly my, here's what I think a lot of counselors do, and it, it's really helpful in individual counseling, but not always very helpful in 
marital counseling is they do a lot of family of origin stuff. And that definitely has a place, and I think it has a place even in marriage counseling, but it's usually not the best place to start because we are revisionist historians, all of us. We don't really remember our history the way it actually happened. We make things up, you know, the research proves that pretty well. And then even after you've identified a pattern that maybe wasn't, maybe was in your parents' life, it doesn't help you solve the problem. So you say, oh, we have understanding now, but you don't get anywhere. And that's why, again, being solution-based, first of all, in my experience, men really like brief therapy or solution-based short-term counseling because it really gets, we, we can, we can actually change the dynamics in our marriage considerably without going into family of origins stuff at all. So that would just be one of my observations about what a lot of counselors do that I find not overly helpful for a lot of marriages. Um, I had a question about how you would think we could incorporate James 4.1 into this, right? So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is that yeah, what it is? desires of battle within, and um, it's certainly important to work through these things. These things are great, and just as we were wrapping up, I was thinking, gee, a lot of our problems might go away if we dealt with it ourselves. I mean, yes. I can learn how to fight well, hear well, but if my heart is still very bent on me getting my way, and if I'm not being Welcome to the club. for the Lord, right? And so... So it seems to me like a lot of our growth and improvement in this area in our marriages would come from our own growth within us, just regarding what God is doing, his priorities, his providential care. We always want more. We always want, you know. Anyway, I I guess I don't really see that, but it seems like that would be pretty foundational. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was, um, how does James 4 figure on this? And I, I tried to demonstrate my superior Bible knowledge by quoting the verse, um, which is what causes quote, fires and fights and quarrels among you? Is it not your desires that war within you? You don't have because you don't ask. When you ask, you ask for wrong motives. Um, so yeah, that whole issue of, you know, it, you know, I mentioned different expectations. And I said, some of those expectations are unrealistic, which is again, desires that may not be appropriate desires to have, and those can prop up all over the place. I'm gonna actually delay this because I'm gonna talk about this extensively in our last conversation on forgiveness and anger because anger actually is one of the primary things that draws out what's wrong within us. And it's God's gift in that sense. I'm gonna suggest that anger is very much God's gift to us, not problematic in its core. And so we're gonna deal with this extensively, okay? Anything else? Um, so I kind of have a, a two-part uh, statement. The first one is um, we're talking about use repair m- mechanics to uh, kind of soften a fight. Um, I'm at a pretty young table. I think there's a lot of wisdom around here. Um, I do have one to share, but it would kind of be nice if people could go around and maybe share their wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so- but one for us is we do kind of, and you only get one of these, and it's usually the guy uses it, but it's a rewind. Um, sometimes I say something stupid, and it just, you know, yeah. and I was like, oh, my gosh, I was thinking that, but I didn't know I said it. Um, and just asking her, like, hey, can we 
you know, take a step back. I said it, but I really didn't mean it. And I, a lot of that is the grace of her to, you know, table that and be like, okay. Yeah. But it really has helped us. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, S- give me your name. Sam. Sam. So Sam's suggesting that we share some of our, uh, our repair mechanisms that we use, which is great, a great thing to suggest. And he says that one of the things that they do is they allow for a do-over, right? Um, or, or, you know, like, oh, yeah, I said that, and I'm sorry that I said that. And uh, can we just go back to before that? I don't know if you saw the film About Time. Great film, but the guy can, like, take something back and do the event again and again, and no one who experienced it will remember it. But, you know, obviously it takes... Uh, sometimes we actually need to say, hey, I said that, and I'm sorry I said that. Can I have a do-over? You know, the, the forgiveness thing comes into place too. But actually, that's a great repair mechanism, just recognizing, yeah, we do say dumb things um, sometimes. I remember one time Rebecca and I were in a fight, and she said something mean to me. And uh, I know, can you believe that? And uh, I said to her, I said, I really want to say something mean back to you, but I'm pretty sure God doesn't want me to, so I'm not going to say it. Um, and which is the whole issue of actually this wonderful thing about having this higher accountability, which isn't just to my spouse. Because if I only had accountability to Re- Rebecca, oh, the things that I would do. But then the fact that I know I have to answer to God also uh, changes the dynamics. But even those kinds of things, learning to, you know, just to, to bring things into it that says, okay, I'm not going to say that, you know, um, so that's one of ours. Any other repair mechanisms out there that you guys know that you use that work really well in your marriages? And Sam's saying, hey, we're neophytes over here. I got this one. What else do you got for me? Love a brother. Come on. Any other repair mechanisms that you can think of? Yeah. I said one that I told my children and my husband, which is uh, to walk away. You know, go in the other room, mm. calm down, and then come back to yeah. the situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so it's a timeout, and it's just recognizing sometimes we do need to, to walk away for, for a, a bit of time because we're not getting anywhere. So that is, the timeout is a repair mechanism for sure, and a really important one, maybe the most important one. I, mean, uh, I don't like to speak in superlatives. Go ahead, please. Uh, I would add a rule, and it says allow a timeout. Establish what the allowed endurance is for the timeout, not yeah. like next month. Right. Right, yeah. So on, on the timeout thing, it really is, you know, it's like when you play tag with your kids, like freeze tag, and when they're really young, everything's base. Floor's base. <laughs> you know, you can't win in that game because um, <laughs> you can never tag them. Um, everything becomes base as soon as you're about to do it. So the same thing works for timeout. You need to say, hey, we're going to do this. And, and it... It shouldn't be too far down the road, but, you know, our lives are complicated. And so, hey, let's talk about this tomorrow night. I mean, Rebecca doesn't usually let me get away without talking about it the next morning, and we usually get up early enough that we can do it the next morning. And I, you know, I dread the next morning, (laughs) but I know that we, I know that it's important. Um, So absolutely, you got to set that time for when you're going to talk again. Any other repair mechanisms out there? Yeah. Anecdotally, I've found out that uh, arguments in the morning go a whole lot better than arguments at night, kind of like what you said. Yeah. yeah. Good. Or behind you there. So we have a few, because we need it a lot. So one is, I'm not your enemy. Mm. Two is, um, I'm on Team Baker, or the Bakers. 
And the third most recent one is, who am I? And then it's the response is, you're my beloved husband, I am your beloved wife. Mm. Those Just are really to bring lovely. it right back to, and then that doesn't always work, but it helps. Eventually, yeah. most of the time, sometimes. Yeah. So, but just really bringing it back to who am I, especially the, the beloved thing lately, because it's like yeah. the way the tone comes out, and I have tone for sure. Yeah. So, just who am I? And yeah. Who are we to each other? Who, because it brings us back to where the gift that God gave each other. Yeah, those that are God great. Gave us. Those are great. I'm on Team Baker, um, was the first one. Uh, I'm not your enemy. And then who am I? Yeah, just those little things. Those are great. Thanks very much. Any others out there before we take a little break here? Yeah. Just a comment. I would like to add something sure. um, to the list. Um, I'm Lisa. Um, during one of my majors, I got a chance to take a few conflict management classes, and that actually was very helpful for our marriage. We've been married for five years. Quick background. I'm not, I'm German, so my mother tongue is German. I was not raised in this culture, which adds two dimensions in our marriage, which can quickly lead to misunderstandings. And often we are not aware that we're misunderstanding each other on a language level or a cultural level. So what has really helped us is called active listening, and you tapped a little bit into that with the speaker listening technique, where you say back to your friend, spouse, child, whoever you're <laughs> talking to, like, I heard you say this, and then you repeat it in your own words. We don't use that technique just in conflicts, but also when he is wrestling through something and I'm trying to understand him, or I'm wrestling through something and he's helping me to parse things out. And just speaking that back so often can help us see we're on completely two different horses here. We, we can't run the same race because you're going this way and I'm going that way and we weren't aware of that. Or, okay, we're pretty close but not quite. So just speaking that back and forth to each other can be so healing. Um, and also just if you're not speaking the same language and you're not aware of it, then you know that very quickly. And another thing is also that we try to remember what are our needs. And just going back to men and women have different basic fundamental needs. Women main needs is like we want safety. Men, it's very important that they feel respected. Um, and that sometimes helps us to dive underneath an issue that came up where it's like, I don't have a problem with you. I feel threatened in my need for safety because you do such and such. And that frames a conversation in a very different way. Um, so just those two reminders, like encouragement for active listening, so speak back to the person what you heard, and talk about what are your basic needs. Not so much what you want, but what do you need in order to be safe and respected. Great, thank you. Excellent things, both of them. Yeah, we're, and we're not very good listeners. It's because we, we think of listening as what you do when you're waiting for your turn to speak, <laughs> rather than something that you uh, actively do yourself. All right, quick caveat, um, I'm not married. <laughs> I've been dating my boyfriend for three years, but I received this piece of advice from uh, like a mentor of mine who is married and I respect highly. Uh, so this would usually happen like before conflict arises, but like if like my boyfriend and I are like, there's some tension and you can tell one of us has like some kind of negative emotion and we're not really able to pinpoint what it is, one of us will ask what's not helping. And sometimes we'll think about what's going on or what has happened throughout our day or week and 
you know, in the past we've thought about whatever happened as maybe a neutral thing, but in that moment we realize that that is negatively contributing to the relationship. So that question gives us an opportunity to think, oh, that actually sucked, I hated that. Um, and this is actually, if we, you know, put that all on the table, it could, you know, avoid spiraling into a conflict. So yeah, that's helpful. great, that's great. And if you didn't hear her, it's just uh, one thing that's helpful to ask is what's not helping, right? You know, and what am I doing that's not helping right now? Um, you know, Rebecca and I sometimes in the middle of things will say, I didn't need you to say that. Here's what I needed you to say, right? And I'm, I'm sure many of you other experienced couples do the same thing in your relationship. You feel like that's cheating sometimes. They should know what to say. Um, but we don't. A lot of times we don't know what to say at all. And therefore, uh, being able to say, because it helps for the next time. You know, you said this, and I know you meant, well, it wasn't really helpful. This is what I needed you to say or what I need you to say, even right now in the situation, that actually really does make a difference. It's not cheating. <laughs> Go ahead over here. I wanted to, I don't know if it would be push back or just sort of- By all means, push back. Go talk ahead. Talk about this, the question of conflict. Yeah. Um, and the role that it has in the marriage. Because I think uh, one reason why you would say, why the statistics show that 85% of the people that um, sort of avoid the conflict as men is because that's act peace is actually something that men are looking for in a marriage. Having a, a peaceful place in their life. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. And so, what, what what I hear you saying is that conflict should be normal. And I, I think that's wrong. I think maybe it's unavoidable, but you should absolutely aspire to have peace in your marriage. And um, like to, to hear advice saying that yeah, you should have a regular time in your marriage, a regular time in your week where you are going to have fights with each other. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I came into this looking for, and, and it's, it's not a, a great thing. Now, to say it's unavoidable because we're flawed, and it's unavoidable because uh, we, we have, you know, there are things about us that make it so that we are going to have disputes. To me, that's different. But um, the, the, a marriage relationship is extremely efficient. There are ways in which your life is so much better because you are married. And we've all had jobs or we've interacted with people who are very good managers and are great at squeezing out that extra bit of efficiency from an employee. And we can do the same thing in a marriage where you can tighten the screws a little bit through the means of conflict and you can, you can get a nicer car or you can have a, a, a better meal because you've, you've managed this person through conflict in this way. But in a marriage, you can't go home at the end of the day. And so um, my pushback is to say peace within a marriage is something that is extremely important and uh, it's, it, I, I just, I, uh, no, I, appreciate I, I, think, that. I, I think my wife would probably say that I'm guilty of, of conflict avoidance. Yeah. Um, 
And, and that's something that, that we'll be sorting out as we talk through the things that you've um, get, said today. But, like... Um, so let me speak to it a little bit. I appreciate, yeah. I appreciate the pushback a lot. So first of all, absolutely, peace is a great thing. There's a lot of great things. And we, one of the reasons we know peace is a great thing is that when uh, Christ comes back and the world is set right, peace will completely reign. But let's recognize what peace is. Peace is not simply the absence of hostility. It's the presence of delight in each other. And one day there will be no more hostility. So you're right, great thing to go for. And by all means, Rebecca and I don't always have conflicts when we have date nights. Many times we don't at all. And so I agree, peace is a great thing. But if one person is... It's, if it's a false peace, right, which is the prophets say, you know, if you say peace, peace, but there is no peace, then that's, not, that's at least not satisfying for one of the partners, and we ought to be working towards that being satisfying for all of us. So I am by no means saying create conflict where there is none, or also I'm not saying that you can't let certain things go. In marriages, if we don't let some things go, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about forgiveness in a bit, and the scripture says love covers over a multitude of sins, Right? But it doesn't cover over every sin, right? And it doesn't cover over every conflict. So, yeah, each couple is going to work this out in different ways. But if your spouse has profound dissatisfaction, that should trouble us. And that, again, conflict doesn't mean, and hear me again on that volatility, it means just working it through. Um, it can be done in a very validating way. It's just actually getting to that place where we say, hey, this is life-giving, for both of us. And couples are going to deal with it differently and handle it at different levels. So, but I don't disagree for a second with the notion that peace is, is a good thing. Um, but sometimes we have to have the conflict to get to a really good peace in the relationship. And again, don't hear conflict as just this super negative thing. Something that's um, shifted in, in my perspective, I would say, in the last maybe five or six years of our marriage has been the encouragement that the things that we argue and fight about now, our early marriage could not have held. And so, like, the beauty of the depth of the argument and the beauty of the forgiveness and the reconciliation to me is, like, really encouraging because I'm like, yeah, our fights are getting probably more personal and deeper and um, but to know that we are building a marriage that can hold that can you know withstand that pressure um, has been really really encouraging and so there actually is more peace because I'm looking next to me and my spouse is someone who I can come to with the worst stuff that's in me I can present the worst stuff that's in him, and then and that I know that we are still walking together in that is just really um, I'm less scared of the arguments yeah. at this stage in the game. Like we're gonna have them, we're gonna get through them. So I think there can be fear of conflict, but in the sense your relationship will not get deeper without it. So. Yeah, so I agree. This, you know, we get our skills, we go along. But back to my brother here. There are times when I think Rebecca, in our relationship, creates conflict where there doesn't need to be one, 
right? And probably many of us experience that. I think like, yeah, wow, you actually seem to enjoy this a little too much. Uh, I feel like, you know, we're doing okay in this area. So again, uh, I, I want to hear both those pieces. Yeah, it's a couple more comments. Yeah. Here and then there, and then we'll, we'll take our break. Uh, my name is Jean. Uh, and, uh, I went to another conflict management workshop a few years ago at another church led the workshop. In a conflict, I heard another phrase that you can use with a person if you don't agree with them necessarily, is I hear you. She said, you know, if you're not, you, know, if you don't want to come out and say, well, I disagree with you. So she said, another phrase to use in a conflict, I hear you. It's like a subtle, gentle way of saying, I may not always agree with what you're saying, but you have a right to your opinion. I have a right to mine, but when I say I hear you, I am also going to respect your opinion, even though I may not always agree with it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, good. And over here, right? We'll take our, so our last one, and we'll get up and walk around a bit. I was just going to say, um, with your conflict uh, resolution skills, one sort of underlying thing that I found after particularly being married for a while and not being so much young anymore is um, th the need to give one another room to grieve. And I, I, I know it's happened in, in our life, and I, I know a lot of people who've been married for a while, you just go through this season where there are so many losses that hit you all at once, and trying to resolve those in a night or, or, or whatever, it's, it's just, it's not loving to the other person. Um, we went through a time where in six months, my father-in-law died, our house burned down. We lost all our cars, clothes, everything. Uh, we then had two kids with PTSD who were having all kinds of trouble in school. We lived in like three or four different houses where we were trying to find a place to live. Uh, we had to hire lawyers to deal with our insurance. And then my mother-in-law died, you know. And so in the, in the midst of all that, you know, I had to accept that I couldn't make it better for my husband. I couldn't fix my kids. You know, I really had to. It wasn't that we didn't talk about how we were feeling. I just couldn't solve it all. I had to just kind of follow the Lord and let him carry us through that season in life. And as we, I think it was finally about nine months later, as we as we got through the big changes there, we could begin to process that. And um, it was really important, I think, for both of us to give each other time to process without jumping in yeah. and trying to solve this problem. Absolutely. Good word. Yeah, sometimes life's just overwhelming. We're exhausted. Uh, there may be issues, but there's time to set the issues aside, <laughs> for sure, uh, and, and come back to them later. But yeah, we need to be kind to each other, and sometimes that kindness is giving that kind of space in the relationship. Super great thing to say. All right, listen, let's take a 10-minute uh, break, walk around a little bit. You, you want to say something there, good sir? Some type of shade of green that's being handed out. We look forward to doing things like this in the future um, and over several different topics. And this is crucial for helping us know just, was this helpful? Um, what kind of input can you give us? And so... We would love it if you would find time before you leave just to take about five minutes, if you can, to circle the answers, whatever your answers will be, to the questions. And then just leave it on the table, and our committee 
uh, we'll, we'll gather those and we uh, will assess that information. You do not have to put your name on it, but of course you can if you want to. If you want us to know exactly who's giving you this feedback, feel free. But if you, if you don't, that is, we don't need your name. We just want to know um, uh, your, your information or sorry, your, your feedback on the conference. Having said that, I, I want to take just this moment to highlight the committee that was put together to make all this happen. And um, this might be where sort of committees really get to shine the brightest because uh, it's a manageable task that has a deadline and there's a, there's a payout at the end that for the most part everybody gets to sort of see and do. Um, and so uh, I'm gonna name names here. Um, Bob and Shirley Worth, Chris Perceau, Terry and Rita Carmen, Lisa Beckman, Mike and Lily Baker, Reed and Amy Berger, Ruth Zuba, Ada Moore, and Karen Ahall. Certainly a divide and conquer as it pertains to all the logistics and the planning. And I think the most part, it was just exciting and encouraging to see this group of people at Wallace excited to bring something to this church that could hopefully be a blessing and a help to us and to our marriages. And so far, we could definitely say, yes, it has, or at least I can. I think it's been really great. Um, but I, I'm thankful for that committee. Second, if you um, are interested in sort of revisiting some of the things that Jeff has talked about, uh, these talks are being recorded, and we'll have access to those. You can have access to those. I think we'll probably upload them to our, um, our web, some of our web prep, uh, presences there. But just know those are available, and if you want to revisit those, or if you're like, hey, this this uh, sec section here I thought was really helpful. I'd love to send it to a friend. He has given us his approval to do so. Um, second to last, um, I just also want to extend an invitation uh, to any and all visitors that are here. Um, if you're looking for a church home, we have Sunday school and worship on Sunday mornings at 9.30 is Sunday school, 10.30 is worship, and we would just simply love to have you. So that's an invitation for you or your family to join us. We'd, we'd love to, um, to be a local church for you if you're looking for that. Um, apart from that, if you're here, certainly if you're a member, but certainly if you're not, and you're recognizing, hey, there's some things going on in our marriage or just with me personally, and I don't really know where to go next to talk about some of those things, I know um, I would love to volunteer myself or any of our officers uh, to be of any assistance to you, whether you are a member of this church or not. And so one of the things that we want to think about as far as these types of conferences is how do they help serve the broader community? Certainly we care about Wallace and, and, and its members, but we're also here to serve College Park. And so if you're here and, and not a member of this church, but you're like, hey, I, I think we need, to, need somebody to talk to or just pray with about some things that are going on in your life, um, find me, find any of our, our officers who uh, several are here. Actually, if you're an officer in our church, would you just raise your hand? You might be sitting at a table with one and not even know it. Sorry to call you guys out, but that's part of the job. Um, so find them, say hello, introduce yourself. I know they would love to talk with you further if that's something that we can help you with as well. Last but not least, my final book plug here, um, and I may be in some ways uh, saving the best for last. This, I, I listened to this last year. It's called The Great Sex Rescue, and it's a mother-daughter uh, uh, tag team here. And my wife actually sent it to me, and I'm thankful she did. And what they have done is they have gone through and looked at the top books on marriage and sex that Christians have written that are for the church and have basically looked at its content and gauged uh, its 
what, how helpful it is, but also how harmful it is. And if you grew up in the purity culture, and I'm not going to say when that was, if you know, you know what that term is and you grew up in it, then this is a must read for you. Um, I can't tell you how much this changed uh, and opened my eyes, not just to my own self and the things that I had been told growing up about sexuality, about marriage, about men and women, um, but also helped me understand my wife in ways that I was almost shocked that I didn't already know how to do that. And isn't that one of the beauties of learning, right? So I can't really say enough about this book other than just to say there are limited copies or just, you know, get it on Amazon. But I'd encourage you to eat this book and to give its content, uh, you know, your uh, attention for just some of the, the lies and the, and the things that we have, even the church with all good intentions, have promoted for the sake of our marriages and for the sake of one another. And, and, and to come to find out it's actually done more harm than it has good. And so... Um, you know, all that means is some things need to be deconstructed before they can be reconstructed. And Jesus is in the business of doing that in so many different ways. And so I just recommend this book to you all. Again, all books are $10 on the back of that table. Um, and we'd love just to be able to put resources into your hand. I think that's all that I have at this point. Um, I know um, it'll be kind of a roll one at the end uh, with Jeff having to leave, but um, just could we just give him a round of applause um, before we start? I know, I know the jury's out until this last uh, session, but thank you for being here. You're most welcome, and really great to be with y'all. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, we want to uh, spend our, our, and by the way, that, that book, The Great Sex Rescue, Killer Good, um, uh, actually probably the best thing that's been written in a long time um, on, on that subject, and particularly, you know, because, again, she deals with pornography in that book as well, and some of the bad books that have been written on how to fight it, uh, and particularly she takes on this book, Every Man's Battle, that was very popular for a long time, and just shows all the flaws that are in their thinking. They're trying to be helpful, but it actually was, in many respects, not a very helpful book when all is said and done. Uh, the Gregoire's book, really excellent. Uh, we will talk about anger, alienation, forgiveness, reconciliation, and uh, we got a half hour, so let's bust through it really quick. Um, you know, in the history of human beings, no one has ever done it, which is fire the first shot. All strikes are counter-strikes. Um, all return fire is just retaliation. Um, no one ever fires the first shot. And of course, then we get into the endless Back and forth, if no one ever fired the first shot, you are always responsible to fire another shot to keep things even. And so the question becomes, what becomes the kill switch, right? That brings that cycle, that endless cycle of strike and counter-strike to an end. And the answer is forgiveness. Um, and whatever uh, role that might have in battles among nations, it has a profound role in our relationships. Uh, it is obviously at the heart of the Christian faith, and yet whenever it happens, it's a miracle. To forgive is, is a powerful thing to do for another person, and we'll suggest why as we go along. But, um, you know, there's two kinds of conflicts that you can have in a marriage. One is a conflict over issues. You know, are we going to eat Chinese, Italian? Are we going to go to your parents or my parents for Christmas? And, uh, you know, uh, all the things we were talking about in the last section. The other thing is conflicts over offenses. 
right? You betrayed me. You lied to me. You did this thing that was hurtful or insensitive to me. And uh, whereas the initial kind of conflict, conflicts over issues, requires that speaker-listener technique and the ability to fight well, conflicts over offenses require forgiveness. And no one has written better on this subject from my perspective than Lewis Smedes, uh, who I quoted when we first started off. He wrote two books, one called He's Not With Us Any Longer, um, but a, a book called Forgive and Forget, and the second one called The Art of Forgiveness. I still like the early one better, they're both excellent. But in the first one, he does an anatomy of forgiveness, and I have found this anatomy to be profoundly helpful, so let me lay it out for you. He says there's four stages to forgiveness in our lives, and he says the first stage is the offense. Someone does something and we hurt. They hurt us. Um, and uh, uh, that whenever forgiveness is, is, is brought into play, it's because an offense has happened. Someone has wronged us in some way. So stage one, we're done with stage one already. Um, stage two, we get angry. We get angry. And um, let's think about anger a little bit uh, because anger gets a bad rap in the Christian community sometimes. But most of us are aware that Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. So there's kind of anger that is not sinful. But even when anger is sinful, I want to suggest to you, at a certain level, it's still God's gift because here is anger's role in our life. It tells us something is wrong. That's what it's telling us. It's telling us something is wrong. The question is, where is the wrong? Is it within me? This gets back to my brother who was raising up James 4. Is there something in me that's out of shape, out of kilter, disordered? Or is there something outside of me? Right? And so we have to be able to discern that. But think of anger as like a smoke alarm in your house. It goes off, and then you ask the question, what is setting the smoke alarm off? Is it an actual fire, or is it the broccoli throwing off too much steam, or whatever might be doing it? But when it comes to anger in our own hearts, or we experience it, we need to ask, is this arising from within me? Are there disordered desires in me? Or is it arising from something outside of me? Someone has actually done something to hurt me. They've done a wrong to me. So if it's within, let's say I, I get home today and I, uh, I turn on the NFL games because I'm going to do that when I get home. And, uh, and Rebecca says, hey, I need you to do these errands. Or, you know, I have this chore I really need you to do. And let's say I, uh, I lash out against her. I, I get angry and I lash out against her. I'm not going to do it, I promise. Um, but let's say I were to do that. What? Is my anger justified in that situation? And the answer is no, it's not. Um, she has not sinned against me by asking me to do a chore um, or an errand of some kind. Now, that doesn't mean that the only thing to do is for me to do it, right? We could say, oh, let's talk about that. I really want to watch this game. I really want to do that errand for you. Can, can I do that later? You know, and she might say, well, I really need you to do it now. But that is just simply a question between about my precious little goals, right? I want comfort, I want peace. Those are good things, but they're not ultimate things. And if loving my wife requires something else, she's not sinning against me by asking me to do something. And if I lash out, what I'm essentially saying is, I want this thing so much, I have an over-desire for it that I'm willing to disobey God to get it. I'm going to lash out at you in order to sort of manipulate you, coerce you into submission so that I get my way, 
right? And those that, so a lot of our anger arises, as James 4 says, from disordered desires within us. We want good things too badly. It's not so much that we want bad things. More often than not, idolatry is wanting good things too badly. And so when we experience anger, that's one of the things that can come out of is the disordered desires of our own heart. But a second thing it can come out of is a wrong that's done to us. Um, and uh, we need to be able to acknowledge that. Oh, that person either lied to me, said something mean to me, betrayed me in one way or another. And once we recognize that, um, that is when the third stage is called for, which is forgiveness. Now, we need to think about forgiveness pretty carefully because there's a lot of misunderstandings about what forgiveness is. So let's think a little bit about what's involved in forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up, most certainly, your right to various forms of overt and covert retaliation. Right? So it's letting go of retaliation. But that doesn't mean, even though you give up retaliation, that doesn't mean you don't give notice. Which is another important thing frequently in the forgiveness process is to give notice. And sometimes very sternly. Hey, you hurt me when you did such and such a thing. I don't know if you recognize it, but you just did this. And that was, that was really condescending or whatever it might be. You're giving notice to the person. So forgiveness doesn't mean you just gloss over it. It doesn't mean saying, ah, it's okay, no big deal. No, forgiveness is recognizing at some level it was a deal of some level or at some level or another. And so while forgiveness doesn't always involve giving notice, frequently it involves giving notice. But it also involves ultimately letting go of the offense. Letting go of the offense. And uh, the question becomes, well, what does that look like in actual practice to let go of the offense? Well, one of the things it means is, again, that I'm... I'm not retaliating. Now again, an interesting thing is we can get anger and we can express our anger and we can express our anger, and this may seem strange to you, but in one of two ways. We can express it with a ministry motive, which is to say anger's role is to set things right again, either set things right in my heart, getting my disordered uh, desires appropriately ordered again, um, so anger can help me set things right within me, or they can help me set things right in the relationship. But if I express my anger to punish, uh, to get back at the person who has hurt me, now I am disobeying God in the way I'm expressing my anger. Now, my anger is to be used, yes, to give notice, maybe quite seriously, but not to punish. It's about saying, hey, there's some things that have gone wrong in our relationship. There is a disorder there. Let's set that right. Um, and so I express my anger with a ministry motive of bringing peace and reconciliation back into the relationship. Um, what does forgiveness look like in actual practice? Well, one of the first things you need to recognize is that forgiveness is frequently granted before it's felt. You don't have to feel forgiveness before you grant forgiveness. As a matter of fact, more often than not, we don't feel forgiving before we grant forgiveness. So what does it mean to forgive when you still don't feel it? Well, it involves three core promises that you make that commit you to a certain course of action into the future. And those promises are simply this. You promise not to bring it up to the person again. You not promise not to bring it up to others again. And you promise not to bring it up to yourself again. Think about those things really quickly. Again, you don't bring it up to the person again, which doesn't say you don't give notice. But once you've given notice and you've had this out, you don't keep on bringing it up again and again. 
You know, even when the most heinous things have been done in a relationship, and I've worked with lots of couples where there's been infidelity at one level or another, and the couple decides they're going to continue to go at it and make a go of their marriage. Um, if the person who has had the unfaithfulness committed against them continues to raise it, there's really no hope going forward, which isn't to say trust doesn't need to be redeveloped. We're going to talk about that. But you can't just keep on holding it over the person's head. Otherwise, there's no way into the future. So you don't keep on bringing it up to the other person. Secondly, you don't bring it up to others. You don't call your mom. You don't call your best friend. Um, you don't talk to your children and say, you can't believe what your father did to me. Whatever it might be, you promise not to bring it up to others again. And then the third place you promise not to bring it up again is yourself. Now, that's, of course, the hardest of the three because you can't prevent it really from popping into your head from time to time. So it can't mean that it doesn't do that, but it does mean that when it pops into your head, you don't play the tapes. Uh, you don't repeat, let the tapes go on continual cycle over and over again so that it increases the, I can't believe he did, I really can't believe she did that. And you, you, you get the whole sort of hornet's nest stirred up again in your heart. And as Luther puts it, he says this with regards to sin as a whole. He says, you know, you can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from making a nest in your hair, <laughs> right? And so it is when it comes to forgiveness. You can't prevent that thing from popping into your head, but you can prevent it from sort of staying there and festering there. And then the question becomes, well, how do you do this? And at least from a Christian perspective, we look to the cross. We look to the forgiveness that we've received. That is where the power of forgiveness comes. And we're able to say, regardless of what these person's offenses against me might be, and they might be very great indeed, uh, forgiveness is not minimizing the wrong that is done. Right? Lewis has a place where he says, oh no, forgiveness has to do with seeing once all the excuses and allowances have been made, sometimes offenses take place in a context, but he says even when all the excuses and allowances have been made, it still involves seeing the behavior in all its ugliness and acknowledging the ugliness of the behavior um, and then still being reconciled to the person, letting go of the offense. So it's not minimizing uh, the, the behavior, but we still say, compared to my sin against God, well, I need to recognize as much as my spouse has acted the enemy against me in this particular situation, I act the enemy against God pretty much daily. And that forgiveness continues to be there. So we look at the darkness within and we see God's ongoing forgiveness in us and we allow that to melt us to the place where we say, well, if God can continue to forgive me, then I certainly can continue to forgive others around me, right? So that's where the power comes from. Now, that doesn't... I mean, that's always easy. It doesn't mean it comes quickly, but it does mean that we do have the resources for it. Um, so that's forgiveness. And that links to the last thing, which is reconciliation. Now, Smeeds was brilliant in distinguishing forgiveness from reconciliation because a lot of people equate them and they're not meant to be equated. You can forgive a person and yet still not ultimately have the kind of reconciliation that one day we will achieve on the other side of the new heavens and the new earth. After all, Jesus does allow for exceptions to the permanence of divorce, and uh, unfaithfulness is one of those. It doesn't mean you have to get divorced in that situation, but that is allowed because sometimes, well, maybe a person keeps on committing adultery, or maybe they just, you can't get to the place of trusting them 
again. But reconciliation, whereas forgiveness is mostly an act, reconciliation is a process. And it's the process of redeveloping trust with the person. And it sometimes requires uh, them engaging in certain behaviors, almost always requires them engaging in certain behaviors to redevelop trust. Sometimes it's not quite so deep as that. Um, but, uh, but often it does. But recognizing that's a process. But that's what you're after. Uh, and I think that's God's desire for most of our relationships. But in a broken, fallen world like ours, we don't always get there. And so Bishop Desmond Tutu, uh, recently passed away from South Africa, says, whenever we get through the forgiveness process, which I think God always requires of us, regardless of another person's repentance or lack thereof, um, that, uh, that we still always have, at the end of the day, the opportunity to either renew the relationship or release the relationship is the language he uses. We can renew it, redevelop trust, bring the life back into it, or we can release it, say, hey, you know, I just, I, I don't know exactly how we redevelop trust in this relationship. Again, I don't think that's the, the best, but again, in a broken world like ours, it's what sometimes happens. Um, last thing to say is who's responsible for this? Well, ideally, as Jesus lays it out in the scriptures, both people ought to be approaching each other when an offense has been committed. The person who has been offended, because frequently, sad to say, the person who has done the offense sometimes doesn't even know they've done it. They're you know, too obtuse to it. Um, and so, but they're definitely required to go if they're aware of it. And the person who has been sinned against is also, Jesus says, hey, if your brother has done anything to you, go to them. You know, if you have anything against your brother, go to them. He also says, if your brother has anything against you, go to them. So ideally, you meet each other on the way. Um, and again, for there to be genuine reconciliation, usually there has to be some form of repentance. Now... <laughs> broken people that we are, sometimes it just looks like sheepishness. <laughs> it doesn't look like saying I'm sorry and really uh, laying it out there. And that's the way it goes sometimes. That's sometimes, sometimes that's good enough. You know, they just like, they're a lot, they move around the house a little bit more gently and kindly towards you and you realize, okay, you know, they're trying to say I'm sorry. It's a pitiful way to do it, but that's what they're trying to do. Uh, obviously, ideally, it's great if you are able to say, hey, I am sorry that I offended you in that way, would you please forgive me? And then have the person respond by saying, yeah, I forgive you. Um, there's, there's power in that, and I would suggest that when you can pull that off, that's the great way to go forward. Uh, let me conclude with a little story. I started out with talking about my parents, um, and, and let me end with talking about a, a moment from my mother's life um, where uh, she knew she was going to die. This was 10 years ago. Um, and... Uh, uh, she knew she had five or six months to live, and so we'd always gone to the Jersey Shore for um, beach vacations. And she brought each of us aside, and uh, she actually asked for each of our forgiveness individually for leaving uh, my father when she did. Not necessarily that she left him altogether, but she said, you guys were young, I should have never done that. Will you forgive me? And uh, if I ever write a memoir, uh, the first line will be, I never knew I needed my mother to ask me for her forgiveness until she did so. Um, that unleashed a, a great final six months <laughs> with my mom. I, I had this internal thing 
that had always kind of been there where, you know, we were warm enough, but there's always a little coolness in the relationship, a distance I kept there. And that disappeared with her doing that. So I say that simply to say, um, you know, if, if there is something that's sticking back there that you think, you know, maybe I need to say this to my spouse, um, you know, or someone else in your life, there's incredible power in that. It's one of the, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give another person. It's hard to do it, right? <laughs> hard to admit our flawedness, hard, hard to admit that we've done something wrong, but again, we have that freedom through the cross to do that. So, you know, as, as you go to your discussions and you leave here, um, not a bad thing to sort of take stock and say, hmm, is, are there some things that, you know, from the past in our relationship, maybe I just need to go to my spouse and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, we've never talked about that before, but I realize that, you know, we've never really talked about that and maybe we need to work that through. Maybe you don't. I don't want to be maudulent about this. But I was surprised how much I needed that from my mother. Again, not thinking that I did, but it, uh, the floodgates opened up in a, a really new way. No particular emotion at that moment, just wow. And suddenly, um, a new lease. Because that's the goal of forgiveness. Is, um, it's actually not so you feel better when you forgive another person. That's true. Of course, we do feel better when we forgive. We're not locked in a place of bitterness. But God doesn't forgive us so that he'll feel better. God feels just fine. <laughs> um, God forgives us to set us free um, into our future. And so when we forgive another person, we're doing it not for our sake, for theirs and for God's. We want to say, hey, walk into freedom. I don't hold it against you. Walk into your freedom. Let's, uh, let's live in a new and fresh way. All right, go to your groups. I'm not sure how much time we have left, not much. Um, let me see, what time do we have left here? Because we may just go to group discussion. Yeah, just go to group discussion um, because we only got nine minutes here. Stay in your groups and just say, hey, what was, what was helpful? What struck you? What did you disagree with? What was challenging in that conversation on forgiveness? And then in about nine minutes, I'll draw us to uh, a close. Draw us to a close here as uh, we hit 12 noon. Um, just a couple of things. Um, by, by all means, keep these conversations going on with yourselves. You know, you're, we have response. We have we have claims on each other in the Christian community. Uh, we are We are a brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, our fellow couples keeper to spur each other on. Uh, our, our marriages are meant to actually give life to us, but again, give life to the world around us as well. And so we need each other. To, uh, to work through these things, yes. So what do I mean by give life to each other? I think I simply mean that we would, uh, you know, Jesus promises abundant life to us, right? And that means a whole lot of things to us. But it ultimately has to do with thriving, flourishing. Those are synonyms that, synonyms that might be also equally unhelpful. But it has to do with having the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, um, becoming the people God wants us to be, uh, both in terms of the peace within as well as the peace we bear without to the world around us. Um, so, so, yeah, it has to do with, yeah, being the, the individuals that God wants us to be and having the relationships that God wants us to have, and not only with one another, but with, uh, with the world around us as well. It's still maybe way too vague, but there you have it. Um, 
couple things is obviously not too much time on this discussion, so keep on having it among yourselves. Um, I'm not going to take questions at this point in time unless there's something really crit critical that came up on your uh, phone along those lines. No. Um, I would, uh, someone did ask a question earlier. They asked the question, hey, shouldn't security and safety be a purpose in marriage? And I would say on the one hand, uh, security and safety is bound up with intimacy in a relationship. In true intimacy, you ought to feel safe. You ought to feel secure with your partner. But I don't make those pursuits in the same way that I would make transformation or, um, or intimacy or even making a difference in the world because actually at times in the Christian life, we are called, I don't think we're ever called to give up transformation. We are called to give up safety and security, um, to, to pour ourselves out to the world. Jesus gave up safety and security, laid his life down for us. So there's some sense in which uh, living life well is bound up with abandoning, at least in certain occasions, safety and security, knowing that our ultimate safety and security is with God. Um, and that is always present there. But certainly our homes ought to be places where we feel safe and secure. So listen, I always love, uh, I, I love any like sort of uh, feedback in which people are challenging things because I certainly don't have it all down and things almost always deserve more nuance than you're ever able to give them. And so, hey, let's keep on wrestling together. Again, a pleasure to be with you. Um, this is sort of I've done this in many different forms, but this is the first time I've ever tried to do this many things on a Friday and a Saturday morning, so sorry if I talk too long at times. This is a, a fun experiment for me as well, but uh, again, I hope it was helpful at, at, at some level or another for you all. Let me pray for us as we go out into the day. God, thank you again for the scriptures uh, that, uh, that teach us what we need to know about ourselves, about you, about our marriages, about what they're called to be. Uh, so much to more to explore than what we've explored here. But Lord, help us to, to keep on pursuing you and keep on pursuing the things that you long for and desire for us and for our world. And so, uh, Lord, as a result of this time together, would there be uh, more uh, joy in our marriages? Would there uh, be uh, even little improvements that... Uh, that um, that make our, our homes better places than they were. And then, your Lord, please do use our witness, both as a broader people, but our very family units. Uh, use them uh, for the well-being of your world, for its salvation, that through them, Lord Jesus, you might continue to do the work of seeking and saving the lost that you came to do. Uh, we are aware that our marriages are part of, uh, of exactly how that happens. So we give ourselves to you. Uh, call for your help amidst our own inadequacies. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thank you all.